Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start the second half of the book of Ephesians. I know I had more verses to cover from chapter 3, but I'm feeling led to press on. Ephesians chapter 4. And this is a section of Ephesians that begins the practical application of the first three chapters. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to, Lord willing, get through the first six verses, but uh, really the whole chapter uh, is about one idea, and that's the unity of the body. And uh, so let's, let's read. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now, the first six, six verses, he's, he's talking about the unity within the body. From, chapters, uh, from verse 7 on, which we'll cover in the following weeks, he's going to talk about diversity within that unity. So unity isn't just about making everybody the same. You know? That's the second part of the chapter where he's going to say, okay, we are a body, but we're different, but yet how do we work as one? Okay? Paul says, Paul's actually going to, in this chapter 4, apply the doctrines of the first three chapters. And what's interesting is that sometimes is that we want to rush and get application really fast without understanding the foundation that's laid. If all I did is tell you what to do without telling you the reasoning or the foundation of why I do it, then there's no logic or reasoning of how you're doing what you're doing. So what Paul is doing here is he says, listen, everything I said, look at the first, look at the first word. It says, therefore. You know what that means? Therefore means that in light of everything I just got through telling you, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now what do you tell us? He says, well, first of all, you were, you were lost, now you're found, right? You were in darkness, now you're in light. You were buried, but now you're raised. In fact, you're raised with Christ in the heavenly realms. You were distant from God, now you've been brought near to God. You were apart from the family of God. Now you've been brought into the family of God. God has done so much for you. In fact, he's, he's, he's called you. He saved you. He has poured out his mercy and grace on you. In light of all that, and now the fact that you are now one body with other people that have different backgrounds. That's one, one thing about the church. We have different backgrounds. Now you're in one body. In light of all that, walk a certain way. Therefore, in light of everything, um, in fact, <clears throat> your walk is going to be necessary to be consistent with your calling. He says, therefore, um, he says, I, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. Let's look at that real fast. He says, I implore you to, 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 to walk. He says, I, I beg you, is what he says. I beseech you. He doesn't command here. What he does here is he he sort of really leans heavily and says, now I'm really beseeching you to listen to what I'm to have to say. See, it's one thing to read the scripture, to, to go through your 
your daily readings, let's say, or you're going through your scripture readings and then ignore it and walk out the door and carry on the same person. It's another thing to say, what is scripture teaching me? When I'm reading the scripture, I want to say, Lord, what is this for me and how can I change how I'm living? Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. If you're just reading it just to check the little checkbox, hey, I'm, I read my Bible today, you're wasting, you're okay, yeah, it's good to be exposed to Scripture, but you want to read and say, Lord, change me. There's something, there has to be something, there ought to be something different. And what Paul is alluding to here is there has to be change in how we, how we live. Um, now, let's look at the, uh, the, first, the first verse. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, I beseech you, I exhort you, I urge you. It's actually a word that's used along with ethical uh, um, commands or urges in, in Paul's writing. There's a sense of urgency here in Paul's language. He's being very urgent. Change how you walk. Look what he says here. In the word walk here, look at here. Look at verse, look at verse uh, 1. He says, I implore you to walk. It's a word that means, it refers to a lifestyle. It doesn't just refer to walking like you and I, like I'm walking right here. It's actually a word that means lifestyle. It means your conduct, how you go about your life, right? Your, your routine, how you live your life. That's what walk means. Not just walking in the park, but how you move, your tendencies, you know, if somebody had to observe your lifestyle of your walk, they would say, oh, he does this. Your, your way of life. Look at verse, uh, verse, two, uh, verse 1 has it. Verse 17 also has this. Look at verse 17. So this I affirm, this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind. He says in chapter 5, verse 2, Walk in love. In verse 8, he says, But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says before, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power there. You formerly lived a certain way, but now I'm calling you to walk a certain way. I'm, t- I'm telling you, to, I'm beseeching you to live a certain way. Does that make sense? Our walk, he's saying, our walk has to come as an outflow of what we've been called to. Look what he says. I implore you back in verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. By the way, when he says, I implore you to walk, he's assuming that the believer is going to change their lifestyle, change their behavior from what it was previously. There has to be a distinction between the old ways of doing things. Listen. A lot of us carry on the old way of how we, live, we used to live, right? Going to home with a husband and wife, and some old things will come out. What I mean by that is old tendencies will come out. Old, when I'm saying old, I'm saying before Christ. I'm saying fleshly stuff will come out. And Paul says, I urge you to change that. Okay? Because of what you've been called to, I'm urging you to change that. Change it from what it was before, previously. He says in verse two, again in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. 
That word worthy is a word that means to bring up the beams. What that means, it means to bring up to balance. It was used as a word for scales. You've been called by God to a high calling. You and I, where are we seated right now? But in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. We were dead in our sins, but we've been raised up with Christ, and now we're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Paul says, I encourage you to live your life in equal footing with that calling. Does that make sense? Some of us have, a, have a, an, uh, an idea of ourselves that, we are, that we're valueless in God's sight. And God says, no, you are of great value. You were made in my image. And you're raised up with my son. And you, I call you saint. And I, have, and I call you my child. Paul says, live your life up to that calling. Does that make sense? He says, he says, Live your life worthy or in equilibrium, suitable to that calling. As Christians, we have a high calling. We are the representation of Jesus Christ on this earth. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, we are the hands and feet of Christ. In fact, we may be the only Jesus that people will ever experience. And I would, my prayer for myself, honestly, I want someone to come away, now, I blow it all the time, right? But I want someone to come away from me and say, I want the Jesus that he has. I want the Jesus that he has. There's something about the Jesus that he has. I want that. Do you want that same kind of? Yeah, we all do, don't we? Paul says, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that, that calling, the invitation to, to, um, to his sonship. He says in Colossians 1, so that, your walk, that, you, that you will walk in a manner worthy of the, law, of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, so that, that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. In the same level. Walk in the same level. Paul is urging conduct and lifestyle which is up to the level of our calling. He urges us to live up to the high calling of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we're, we're to be perfect, right? As, well, actually, we are to be perfect as God is perfect, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to blow it. But that means there's an invitation towards that. Now, what is that going to look like? What is that going to look like? <clears throat> How do we do that? That's a high, that seems impossible, what does that look like? What is, God, what is Paul getting at here? Well, look at verse 2. In verse 2, he's going to start with six attitudes that are, going to, that are going to lead towards unity. Six attitudes. We're going to go through each one. And then we'll, then we'll go home and watch the Cardinals' highlights and, you know, thank the Lord for, for their win. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. Paul is growing. He's growing. He's going in one direction, Unity. He's going in one direction. I'm headed towards unity. Um, why is he? Why is he going towards? What's? Why is he going towards this goal of the unity? What's the big deal with that? Well, he says. Well, he says in chapter in in, the, in this chapter, verse four, five, and six. There's one. There's one body. There's one God. There's one Father. You know. There's there's a basis for that. God is one. God is one. So when Baptist, 
It's a good thing. It's a bad thing when husbands and wives are not one, right? Okay? When mom and dad aren't getting along, it's not a really good thing. Is this because the picture is God himself in unity. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, but one God. Uni- Jesus prays in the garden, I pray, my Father, that they would be one even as we are one. Okay? It's a demonstration of the nature of God when your relationships are together as one. That's the goal, right? That's the goal. Um, now, he's speaking, Paul is speaking to the church at Ephesus. Of course, they had Jews and Gentile believers, and they were different backgrounds, and everybody came in, and, you know, eventually later on, you know, you know like, they had to learn how to have church together. You know, the Jewish people say, well, you're not really circumcised, so you're not like us, and well, you're, you know, don't... They had to learn that. Well, here in our age, we don't have that. What we do have is we have people who are different. We have people who are married and who are... You know, the point is this, is that the goal is always towards that. Paul is going to say in, in these six, six attitudes that the goal of unity is, is primary, ought to be primary. Because here's what happens. Because the devil wants to pull people away. He wants to pull relationships away. He wants to put divisions in churches. He wants to put divisions in, 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 in friendships. He wants to put division in families, division between husband and wife. Does that make sense? This is where the devil attacks. You know that, right? That's where the relationships that are together in, in harmony with the Lord are under attack because the devil would have nothing else, would, would love to see all those being torn apart. So Paul says, okay, these things are necessary. These attitudes are necessary in order to attain that. Does that make sense? You guys following? Okay. Excuse me. Okay, the first attitude that will lead, that is necessary for unity, the first attitude that is necessary, and this is something I am learning personally. I am, I'm telling you, I'll, have, I'll just have to I'm studying for this right and you know sometimes Sharon and I have a little tension you know and I'm trying to apply I'm like Lord help me to do this right because I don't want to just get up here and preach and teach and say oh go you know do this and, and I'm like I need to hear this God you know I, I'm susceptible to wanting to cause division or wanting to go my own way the first and most important attitude is verse word here verse 2 with all humility, with all humility and gentleness, but humility is the first one. Humility is the most important ingredient. If you want to have unity in your home, if you want to have unity in relationships, humility is the most important ingredient. I can't think of one healthy relationship where the basis of it is pride. Where pride leads to unity, but but, unit, but humility is the necessary ingredient for that. Humility actually was not used before New Testament times. Do you know that the ancient Greeks and Romans considered humility to be a vice? They did not consider humility to be a virtue. They thought that build yourself up, make yourself look better. That was their virtue. Humility was not considered very virtuous. Uh, it was, um, it was um, looked down upon. 
um, humility, it conveys, it means lowliness of mind. It, it means, um, it, it means to have a, it literally actually, um, one of the words in Hebrew, it actually means to be bow down, okay, like that. Um, it, it's a word that, that is, um, uh, it conveys selflessness. Uh, humility, it, no, you know that, humility is not really promoted, right? If you want to get somewhere in, in business or politics, you've got to show what? Pride, you've got to show arrogance and confidence, right? That's really what our, our but the humble guy never gets noticed, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, um, you know, if you want to run for politics, you've got to feel like you're all it and bag of chips and that you have to, you know. But humility is what God honors. It says, the scripture says that God hates the proudful but lifts up the humble. Humility uh, is what Paul served the Lord with, with tears and, and trials in Acts chapter 20. Uh, in Philippians 2, which uh, Brother Derek read from today, uh, in Philippians 2.3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what it is, okay? When you are humble, you are considering the other person's interest as more important than your interest. That's hard to do. Because we all want our own will to be done, don't we? Come on. Honey, you didn't go the right way to, to so-and-so's house. Why did you take that way? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not looking at her like this. I'm just, come on, you know, like, well, I just did what Siri told me to do, right? Well, you listened to her, not me. You know, like, you know, <laughs> let's be honest, right? He, he, we all want our, we all want to have some say-so in somebody else's life, don't we? We want some control. We get frustrated when somebody doesn't do things our way. When people don't live like, I don't know, if they were to just listen to me, then I, their life would have been golden, right? But since, you know, if only they would listen to me, you know, it, it creeps up in our hearts. It is, it is there. It is something that is hard to read. Listen, just go into any husband and wife's, you know, go into your household when he wants to do something and she wants to do something else and neither of them want to budge because they both want what they want done. Well, honey, if you were considerate of me, you would have said da-da-da, right? That's sort of, you know, humility is the one that is, humility does not seek after its own will or desires. It seeks the interest of others. Humility, here's what it does to lead to unity. Humility takes off your armor. Pride is like this. Humility says, uh, here, I'm, I'm bare. You just, whatever you want, right? That, that uh, humility puts you at their mercy. That's hard to do. But it's necessary for unity because if everybody comes into a room and everybody wants their own will done, and nobody wants to say, no, you, I prefer yours. You go first. It's interesting that God um, called Abraham to, to, uh, to land. 
And Abraham had his son, his son, his nephew Lot, and they both had so much stuff. And Abraham says, listen, you, you choose first. Now, Abraham's the call of God. God says, I'm going to give you the land. But Abraham says, hey, Lot, younger nephew, though I am older than you, and I can pull a rank. I'm not going to do it. He doesn't say it. He says, you go first. Lot chooses the land, and then God says, okay, here's his land, and the rest of it is yours. Abraham is very humble in that. He gives honor and preference to somebody else. Conflict often arises when two people are seeking and fighting for their own will and their own interest. Think about it. Next time you have conflict with somebody, ask yourself, am I upset because I want my, my will to be done they're not, and they're not listening to me? Because usually conflict happens because there's pride on both sides. Does that make sense? This is key because, in fact, the rest of Ephesians is about relationships. Based on this foundation, chapter 5 and chapter 6, going on to husbands and wives, children, slaves, co-workers, or whatever you know, that's all foundational on this humility part. In fact, Ephesians will end with spiritual warfare, which attacks these relationships. Does that make sense? Now, here's one thing to write down. Humility is a choice. You can choose. You can choose. It is a choice to give up your right. It is a choice to say, not my will, whatever you want. It is a choice to put on humility. It's not something that God says, something zaps you. You say, no, I'm going to follow Christ in that. Humility is a choice. It is a recognition of who we are in God's economy. It is a recognition of who we are in God's economy. It's a recognition that in all of this, Christ is the one that needs to be exalted. In this relationship, how can Christ be exalted? Is it by me trying to promote my self-interest, or is it by me being humble and giving into the other self-interest? Does that make sense? John the Baptist had a, a well-known ministry. In fact, Uh, A lot more was written about John the Baptist uh, by some of the um, extracurricular, extra-biblical texts. He was pretty well known. Uh, But he says, at the height of his ministry, he says, listen, he must increase, but I must decrease. Christ must increase, but I must decrease. The humble person desires for Christ to be exalted. The humble person takes up, as Christ did, he takes up the towel like Christ. I have in, um, in my office, I have... Um, a statue or like a, like a paperweight, like a book holder, you know? I have, I have two. I have one that's, you guys seen it, right? It's one where Jesus is carrying the cross, and I have another one where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. A humble person will take up his towel and say, I want to serve like Christ. That promotes unity. Why? Because it, it sort of takes down your defenses. When you don't want to fight back, it's kind, of hard to, it's kind of hard to have a good wrestling match. <laughs> the other person doesn't want to fight back. You say, you know, whatever you want. My, I, my unity with you is more important than getting my will done. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes as men, when we fight with our wives, we want to be right. How many of you guys are, want to be right with your wife? When you're arguing, how many of you guys are fighting to win? Come on. Because the, the object is winning, Right? When you're at odds with your wife, the object is winning, right? Because you win, right? And yet you can be deadly wrong because when you win, 
with pride, you lose. And Paul's saying the relationship is more important. Unity with, with your spouse, unity with the one you're with, unity with the brother or sister in the Lord is more important than you being right. So Paul says in order to, to achieve unity, humility has to be, has to be there. Paul says, let me consider, humility says, let me consider your needs above mine. That's hard to do. You know that? That's really hard because sometimes we know what the answer is, right? We know what should happen, yet for some reason, the relationship is more important. Keeping the peace, keeping unity is more important. The humble person desires to contribute to the relationship to the well-being, to the benefit of the other person. So you're not thinking about yourself when you're humble. You're thinking about the other person. In fact, I want you to know this, and Lord willing, we'll get through this whole list, okay? So please bear with me. The humble person is more considerate of the other person. In fact, they desire to, to seek to the benefit of the other person as Jesus takes up the towel to wash the disciples' feet for their benefit. Um, prideful person says, my needs need to be met. The humble person says, I want, you, I want your needs to be met. What, whatever you want. What's good for you? Prideful person says, my needs are being met. You need to meet my needs. Humble person says, Christ already meets my needs. Christ is my fulfillment. You know that your, your husband and wife is not put on this earth to, to meet your needs necessarily? Your needs are met ultimately by Christ. They're your helper. You're a team. But your value, your encouragement, your enrichment, your fulfillment is not found in your husband or your wife or your children. It is found in Jesus. So humility is a choice to take up the towel like Christ. In fact, if you think of Christ, one of the main characteristics of Jesus Christ is his humility. Zechariah 9 talks about, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. You know, a humble person is approachable. There's no fight with them. They're just humble. And that enhances unity. Because they're not concerned about getting their will done. Let's go. Second word. That was one. Oh my. Got to hurry up, right? <laughs> You're lucky I'm not covering syllable by syllable, right? It's just <laughs> Second word is, is similar. It's the word, it's gentleness. Second word that leads towards unity is gentleness. He says, with all humility and gentleness. It's a word that has a couple meanings. One is a word that was used for an animal that had been trained and had been domesticated to the point where they were completely under control. But man, if this animal wanted to come out against you and pounce you, they could if they wanted to, but they were under control. It's a horse that's under the power of the reins of the rider, right? But you know that horse, if they wanted to, they could, you know, <laughs> but they don't. 
the, the, word, the, uh, the word that's used, uh, the, it comes from a word, it's uh, the word praus in Greek, and it's used for mild or friendly things, like a smoothing medicine, gentleness, like a smoothing medicine. The person who is like this is always, they're angry at the right time for the right purposes and never angry at the wrong time. They're more indignant at the wrong, wrongs that are suffered by others than they are at the wrongs that they're suffering. It is a gentleness of attitude and behavior. It is the opposite of harshness and roughness. And I don't know about you guys, but I have a tendency to sometimes be rough to my wife, verbally, to be harsh, answer harshly, of, of being a little bit too reactive. It's a word that means to, to have the quality of not being overly impressed with your self-importance. If, you, if humbleness is an inward attitude, gentleness is the expression of that. If humility is an inward attitude, gentleness is the expression of that. Gentle people aren't harsh. They don't look for a fight. They're not looking to get their own way. They're not looking to win every argument. For them, winning is not the goal. Unity is the goal. Paul says, I encourage you to be humble, to be humble of heart, to be gentle in your dealings with whoever, especially those who are near you in the Lord. Gentle people like humble people consider the needs and feelings of others. They enhance unity because they have softened the edges of their life. It's like, you know, you get the furniture and you get the coffee tables. And you, how many of you guys, when you had kids, you thought about that? You get those little device things? Those little, you know, you put them, you, well, can't take baby there because the corners are really, you know. Gentleness softens the blow. It softens the edges Right? Softens the edges of how you, because they're considered, you know, you do realize when, we, when you're dealing with other people that they have feelings too, right? <laughs> um, sometimes we don't, as men, sometimes we come off a little bit too, a little too strong, right? Because as men, we can talk to each other in a certain way. But to our wives and to other, maybe those who are more sensitive, we can't. So we have to be really humble. We have to be real gentle. And it's a choice. It's a fruit of the Spirit. In the face of insults, the gentle person remains calm. The gentle person um, approaches somebody with, with kindness, uh, with an attitude of the benefit for the other person. When someone is er- in error, the gentle person goes with the purpose of not pointing out to accuse them, but with gentleness to try to apply the soothing medicine of hope and restoration towards them. Christ commends gentleness in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Christ himself is his own, he is example of gentleness to us. He, he is, is one that was approachable by anyone. Another word that's, that's how many of you guys have a different word than gentleness? Meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Christ says, blessed are the meek. Matthew 5, 5, right? Or the gentle. You think about it. We're Christians. Gentleness ought to be a... That's where Christ comes out. And we're gentle. We want to be Jesus to people? Be gentle to people. We want to be, be Jesus to people? Be humble. Doesn't, that's, that will broadcast it more than anything else. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that to be meek means that you have finished with yourself altogether. 
To be meek means that you have been, you are finished with yourself altogether. Let's go to the third word, patience. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. How many of you guys have a different word than patience? Long-suffering? That's actually a good translation. Patience actually is a compound word in Greek. It actually is built on two words. One word is thumos, which means anger, and the other word is makros, which means long time. Not that you're angry for a long time, but it takes you a long time to get angry. In the Hebrew Old Testament, the word was long-nosed. God is said to be long-nosed. It takes him a long time for his nose to flare up in anger. Okay? The patient person is one who can endure grief and suffering for a long time. They put up with a lot. They put up with a lot. John Chrysostom, which was an, he was an early preacher back in the church father age, says, It is the spirit which has the power to take revenge, but never does. J.B. Lightfoot says, the spirit, It's the spirit who refuses to retaliate. That's what patience is. Now, how many of you guys ever watched the fight? Ever watched fights like, like boxing or MMA? Or if you're watching a movie where it's a good guys against bad guys, what do you want the bad guy to get? You want the bad guy to get it, right? Okay, that's, in, in, and watching a movie, that's one thing. But in real life, when somebody mistreats you, you can't retaliate. Christ is in the garden, he's getting beaten, he's on the cross, and never once does he retaliate. He could, but he doesn't. Patience, this word, refers to a state of calm when provoked, without complaining or being irritated. It's used for God uh, as being patient and long-suffering. In fact, patience gives the other person a chance to change. A patient person trusts God's timing. A patient person trusts God's strength and, 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 and will and his will to be done in the right time in the right way. A patient person leaves things in God's hands than takes it in his hands. He, bear, he or she bears insult and injury without retaliating. Here's why a patient person can, can do this. It's because a, when you're a patient, you can... You understand that when, when somebody wrongs you, they're not depreciating you. A person who is in, who, a Christian understands their values in Christ, Right? I am valuable to Christ, I am seated with Christ, I am forgiven and raised up with Christ, and nothing on earth or in hell can change that. So a Christian who knows who they are in Christ, and they know their value in Christ, Christ, can put up with a lot and not be affected. It's like this. Imagine a Great Dane. Imagine a little puppy. You ever seen that little puppy wants to... to Nip at the Great Dane and a big dog. What does a dog do? Right? That's what patience does. Because he realizes that this little dog can't do anything to me. The believer who knows who they are, their value, their worth in Christ, can't be affected because 
they understand it's what God says, and that can't change, right? Now, it's hard to live with sometimes, but we understand that what God says about us is truth, and, and, and what people do to us doesn't change our value or worth. A patient person is able to say, see their security, their calling, their value in Christ, and know that people and nothing, the lies of the devil, temptations cannot change it. Scripture says that God is patient. It's a virtue of, it's a characteristic of God. He's, how many guys are thankful for God's patience to us? How many guys ever wonder, Lord, how do you put up with me? You know, thank the Lord. He is, he is long-suffering. He is very patient with us. Thank you, Lord. That he... He knows our frailty. He knows our tendencies, and yet he's patient with us. Sometimes our loved ones aren't very patient with us, maybe for right and matter. Maybe we've bugged them too many times with the same thing. But God's patient with us. Patient is, patience is... is um, it's, it, it's, it's a persistence... An unswerving, a swerving willingness to await events rather than trying to force them. It is allowing things to happen in God's timing. Do you know something about the three? So far, we've gotten three, right? Humility, gentleness, and patience. Do you notice something about this so far? This will be... That not one of these things is on how to change somebody else, but more of you and your character, what God wants. You know what's that? Not one of these things is, because you know how it is, we, how we pray. Lord, oh, Lord, please change so-and-so. Oh, if you just show them the error of their ways, you know, and just, oh, if they only knew how, how arrogant they are, whatever it is, you know. You ever notice that? Paul doesn't even do, none of these things, I'm going to tell, tell you what, the first three and the last three are going to be the same thing. Not one of these things are going to be saying, here's how to change the other person. These things are all going to be, uh-uh, listen, child. Just as my son, Jesus Christ, had endured a lot of stuff and reacted and responded in the right way with love and kindness and patience and long-suffering and forgiveness and endured a whole lot, I'm asking you the same thing. What if that person never changes? See, if you're waiting for somebody else to change before you're satisfied or happy, you'll never get satisfied or happy. You know that. You're waiting for that person to come begging on their hands and knees, begging you forgiveness and, and giving you pots of gold for rec- recompense. That's never going to happen. Jesus is dying on the cross, and the first thing he says while he's on the cross is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And not one of those people ever came back to Jesus and says, I am so sorry, Lord. You know that? They crucified him, they left him there, and he says, Father, forgive them. Well, you know, I read a forgiveness book that says, you know, you should really wait for them to come to you before you give them that. That's nonsense. Jesus doesn't do that. He forgives them, even the fact that they just got through throwing things at him and punching him and nailing him and and insulting him, you know? And in response, you know, you could tell a lot about a person who uh, who has a cup, Where's a cup? Give me a cup. Okay. Uh, mom, 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 mom's got a cup. 
I don't know what's in your cup. Okay, let's imagine this is full. You can tell what's, you can tell what's in a person, not by looking in them, but bumping them hard enough. You bump them hard enough, you'll see what comes out, right? Cut me off on the freeway. You know? Don't answer my text or my Facebook messages. Oh, no, well. You can tell a lot. And so, it's, Paul is saying, hey, these attitudes, I'm working on the inside of you, son. Daughter. That's, that's really what we want. Our goal is this, to have, Lord, work on my heart. Because, yeah, I have to, the Lord says, I have to work in her heart too. But I really want to work in your heart because there's still stuff in there, right? So in all these attitudes, in all these attitudes, none of them is, Lord, change them. It's, it's right here. It's, it's God working on us. God, forgive me. God, show me how to be patient. God, give me the strength to, 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 to love this person. Give me a love for this person. Lord, help me to be patient with them. Number four. First was number one was humility. Second, gentleness. Third, patience. Number four, tolerance. How many of you guys have another translation? Forbearance. Anything else? Forbearing with one another or showing tolerance for in love. Making allowance for each other's faults. Remember, this is all going towards unity. Do you want to build up unity in, in anything? It's these attitudes. This is a word that means the sense of enduring something difficult or unpleasant. Of, it's, used to, uh, in, it's used in 1 Corinthians 4 for enduring persecution. For... Um, um, in fact, Jesus uses it for enduring his disciples' lack of faith. You know, how long should I put up with you? you know? It means to bear with, to put up with, to... Um, it actually, uh, it's, in the Greek, it means, it technically would mean to hold yourself back from another word. In other words, to, to keep from, to hold yourself back, right? To endure a whole lot. It is restraint. It's, it deals with the differences between people. It means to tolerate people who are maybe different. Maybe tolerate people who are in different circumstances. Maybe tolerate and put up with people. Now, here's the thing. There's a difference between patience and tolerance or forbearance. Patience may help us and deal with all kinds of circumstances, but forbearance helps us to deal with all kinds of people. See, so Paul's not letting us off the, off the, off the hook here. He's, he's covering whether it's difficult circumstances or difficult people. It's still keeping, keeping, the, keeping the things to, thinking, keeping the, oh, what's the opposite of not freaking out? Keeping it all together, right? Keeping calm. The tolerant person, the forbearing person, reaches out with forgiveness. They see somebody that's different than them. Maybe they don't click with that person. Maybe they don't like them for some reason. They look at them funny or they have a different background, and they reach out with love. They reach out with compassion, with understanding, with grace. The tolerant, forbearing person, the humble person as well, 
reaches out with a benefit for that other person? What can I do to contribute to their benefit? It's the one who welcomes the person who's different. and tol- Now, it doesn't mean to tolerate sin. It means to tolerate the other person and say, you know, Lord, they may have a different way of looking at things, maybe a different way of handling their life, but I'm going to be forbearing with them. Does that make sense? You allow people, here's the thing. <clears throat> because we're more concerned in unity, we're more concerned with our own attitudes, and we're open, Lord, work on my heart, we're less concerned with how they're doing things. We're like, Lord, the tolerant person says, Lord, they're in your hands. You handle them. Because they recognize, the humble, gentle, forbearing, patient person recognizes that they're not God. But God is God. That God is more powerful to change that person or circumstance than you and I are. That we are more, more aware of the things that God has to do with us than what we think the other person has to change. Well, if they really want to have their life better, they would just do things my way, and then things, they'll just be happier. No, they won't, because maybe God has a different way for them. The tolerant person says, they have a different way. They're different than me. God bless them. <laughs> you know, you know, I don't understand them, but I love them. God bless them. I pray for them. You know, Lord, deal with my attitude, right? They're not looking to change the other person. They're allowing... They're, they're, maybe they're a different perspective, a different unique ability that, that God will fulfill in their own timing, and they don't judge the other person. They show f- forbearance and tolerance in love. Paul says that uh, the same word. He says, when we were reviled in 1 Corinthians 4, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. We respond with endurance. Fifth word, real fast. How are you guys doing? Okay. Man, six, I can't think I'm going to get almost to six points in one, last week was one. So you guys are tolerant and forbearing. Thank you for your forbearance and patience and humility or whatever. Fifth one, showing forbearance for one another in love. Real simple, in love. The word there is agape. Agape means unconditional love that expects nothing in return. Now that's a real killer for me. I don't know, like, sometimes you give somebody love and you're like, Hey, where's the, where's the bounce back, right? Unconditional love, it's what Christ demonstrated on the cross. He died for, for, for people who would never love him back. Unconditional love is a, a love that takes risks. That's what love is, actually. But unconditional love is the love that says, I'm pouring out this love to you, and I have no expectation that you'll return it back. That's what God does. When he died for the sins of this world, there are some people in this world will never take advantage of what God did for them, right? Never say, Lord, thank you, Lord, I believe, I want to follow you. But unconditional love says, I'm giving, I'm helping for your benefit with no expectation that I'll get anything returned. In fact, the joy of that person is in the giving in itself, not in the receiving back in return. I st- I'm still choosing to love this other person. I'm still choosing, despite their lack of reciprocating love to me, I'm still choosing because that's what God's love is like. It's a love that is not possessive love, but a giving love. Does that make sense? That's the kind of love that Christ calls us to have. Is a giving love that is, that is, that is more giving, not like, okay, I need you and you know, feed me and, and, and build me up, right? 
That's not uh, the kind of love that Christ calls us to be. It is the kind of love that seeks the highest good in the one that's loved, that seeks the will of God in that person. See, that's what really what we're called to as Christians is what's, in it, what's the best for them? It takes the eyes off ourselves and say, what's best for them? How can I benefit them? What would be blessing to them, right? What would, be, what would build them up? What would be meaningful to them? I imagine, now this, this is not on script here, right? Um, I imagine that that's what, when we get to heaven, okay, I love to ski, and I'm praying that there's snow and mountains in heaven. And I, <laughs> and I also, I can't sing. I can't sing. I can barely lip sync. But maybe the Lord will give me a singing voice while I'm skiing in heaven or something, you know, because he knows it's meaningful to me, right? That's how, I think that's how the Lord is. That, that's special to John. That's special to Kim. That's special to Michelle and Alyssa and Tom, right? That's meaningful. That, that means a lot to them. I want to I encourage them. Can you imagine? That's how the Lord is. Um... I imagine that there'll be a lot of laughter in heaven, too. I tend to be very serious, you know, like Mr. Spock, you know, serious, stoic person, you know. (laughs) But I imagine there'll be laughter in heaven. That's meaningful. That's that's how God's love is. It's it's seeking the will and the highest good for that person. Interesting that, look at verse 2 again. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Do you see the connection between tolerance and love? Here's what the connection is. If you tolerate somebody by itself without love, it leads to resentment. Oh, I'm just putting up with this person. Oh. Like, okay? But if you tolerate somebody in love, there isn't that resentment. And that leads to unity. Last thing. And I know I've gone long. Verse 3. Six, all for the goal of this. Sixth thing. Goal is unity. Sixth thing. We've said five so far. Be humble, gentle, patient, tolerant, loving. And if he didn't say it enough, now he uses, he says, be diligent or eager to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How many of you guys have a different translation than being diligent to preserve? Another translation. Eager to maintain. Endeavor. It's a word that, that means to show or have a keen interest an intense desire, an intense effort or motivation to do something. It's, it's something that you do with all, as much as you can, of all your might and as intensely as you can. He says, be eager, intently, to preserve this unity. In fact, in, uh, in this... This, this translation that the, the, the church has here. He says, make every effort to maintain the unity. Make every effort. Do everything that you can. 
Make haste is another way to translate. Make every effort. It's a unity that already exists, but effort has to be put in to maintain that. Now, that's true in life. That's true in life where we can't just go on cruise control and say, no, it's something that has to be constantly, because there's always going to be attack to that. Things are going to want to pull people apart, right? I might say something. I might say something to my wife on the way home. No, we're in separate cars, not because we're, we're at odds, but let's say I may say something to her, right? And I may say something that is harsh to her, right? Now, if there's something that's harsh, there's a wall. Now, instantly, I'm like, I'm going to make every effort to repair that, right? To try to work, to try to maintain that. Now, or, or just maintaining this harmony with my wife. Because I believe that unity with her is, takes value over anything else. I would, rather, I would rather be wronged than to be at odds with her. I don't want to sleep on the couch. It's no fun sleeping on the couch. Not saying I sleep on the couch, but I'm saying I don't. <laughs> now, now I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm just using an example. I'm, I'm not, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you realize I'm just, you know. My point is, is I value relationship with her in such a fact so much that I will go through whatever I have to to maintain that. Relationships are always attacked, especially marriages. And I'm just saying, especially marriages, because that, if you break that down, it has ripple effect. So Paul says, be diligent, make haste, make every effort. Take, it takes work, constantly, actively pursuing to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says, unity is the goal, these attitudes are necessary, and finally, it all has to take work of just maintaining that because we know that, that things can, can drift apart. Things can be, people can be pulled apart. And Paul says, listen, whether it's in, in church or whether it's at home or in friendships, those always, you always have to maintain that because the goal of unity is the, goal, is, is, is the most valuable thing. Does that make sense? Oh, six points. Oh, my Lord. Humility. Lord, help me to be humble. Help me to consider the other person's desires, wishes, wants above mine. Help me to respond out of gentleness. Help me to be long-suffering, forbearing, patient with others. Father, I pray for our church tonight. I pray for, that you would have a unity of your spirit here in this room and the relationships that are here in this room, the relationships that are, are not even here tonight for some reason, but we pray for the, the relationships of, our, of the members in our church that you would help us to, as, as, as daughters and sons of you, to live with attitudes that will enhance unity, Lord. We pray for our body, Lord, that you would unify us. We pray for the marriages that you would bring unity where there's division. We pray, Lord, that you would fill our hearts with love, with unconditional giving, not taking love, love that seeks the benefit of others, Lord, that we would be a church that would be a loving church where people would feel welcome and they would receive grace 
and that, that Christ will be encountered, Lord. Help us, Lord, to put on humility, as Paul says. Help us, Lord, to follow the example of Christ in taking up the towel and serving others, thinking more of the other person's needs than our own. Help us to grow in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.